What an amazing time to be alive. What an amazing time to be watching the news and having conversations about the news and consuming all kinds of bits and pieces and opinions from hither and thither, like a little bower bird pecking around the internet and social media, trying to figure out what's true and what's not. But also, what an amazing time to be susceptible and vulnerable to stridency, to misinformation, to whataboutism, to people trying to distract us from what really matters, jangling keys in front of our face in order to get us to look over here instead of remaining stable and calm and even keeled about our own opinions, our own vision of the truth. Now is a moment to reach across aisles, to set aside differences, to have faith in democracy, to have faith in bigger ambitions and bigger things to believe in than just the day-to-day. The only way we can do that is by having conversations that resonate with all of us, conversations that make sense to all of us, conversations that are difficult, conversations that are important, conversations that are, as always, a little bit uncomfortable. On today's show, what a bracing, fascinating chat with a really interesting guy. This is not as uh, depressing and gloomy and terrifying as you might think it is on the basis of the title, uh, because it is about a book called The Next Civil War, which openly speculates about how the United States could descend into civil war. Not just how, but sort of prognosticating that it's very hard to envisage how it doesn't happen. It's written by a Canadian journalist, novelist, essayist. Uh, But we go into interesting areas about just the differences between American democracy and parliamentary democracies and the psyche of Americans about their nation and about how cohesive it is and, you know, why separatism might be okay in some countries like Quebec or uh, Scotland and isn't okay for Texas. It's really, it's, this is not just if you're interested in American political division, uh, but if you're interested in how countries hold themselves together from the perspective of a smart Canadian and, a maybe almost sometimes pretends to be smart Australian, talking about a country that neither of them <laughs> are, are from. Uh, Stephen Marsh, as I mentioned, he's a, he's a writer. He's written a half dozen books. Uh, he's written opinion pieces and essays for The New Yorker and The New York Times and The Atlantic and Esquire. But yes, his latest book is The Next Civil War. It's terrifying. It's bracing. But this conversation is hopefully even a little fun. Enjoy the one and only Stephen Marsh. talk to you. I've just been listening to you and Andrew Yang on his podcast as well. Bracing stuff. He's, he's un, for an American politician, he's unflinching in his ability to look at these things. You know, most of them just are in such denial mm. about the reality that, but he, he is willing to look at it. Uh, yeah, he's fascinating. I wish he'd gotten more traction. Well, I mean, it's, you know, you saw that poll in the New York Times today that like, I, I mean, some I forget the exact number, but some huge number of Americans are, of both parties are aware that they need systematic governmental change. I mean, I was quite hardened by that. Like, I mean, yeah. I was like, they, they are starting to figure out, like, the problem is not actually Republican or Democrat. It's actually that the system is so 
broken that it doesn't really matter who you elect. It always leads to bad outcomes and bad decisions. And, uh, and also, you know, distrust in a sense that in a sense that the country is not legitimate and its institutions are not legitimate. And, you know, what's needed here is like ground up structural reform. So, you know, he to me is the politician who most embodies that. And that I mean, I think that like if there is a breathing space here where people are not operating just out of fear and loathing, um, you know, that I, I think it could take off. I mean, like it is becoming clear that that's what's needed. I, think. I mean, I'm normally not that sympathetic to that kind of jadedness that is being expressed in those polls. You know, the a pox on both your houses and like, oh, it doesn't matter who you vote for, because I just feel like so frequently that's used as an excuse to not actually engage with the possible and it allows the the perfect to be the enemy of the good. And, you know, oh, who cares whether it's Hillary or whether it's Trump? You know, they're all corrupt. And, you know, I kind of roll my eyes. But it's not that. It's that the system is broken. Right. 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 I mean, it feels like something, there is something different going on now. How did you come to this, Stephen? How did you come to this topic? Well, I I was sent by a Canadian magazine to cover the 2016 inauguration, like the Trump inauguration. And um, it was like insane. And, you know, there was this incredible tension on the street and people were freaking out. And there was, uh, you, you know, there was I was standing on top of a limousine at one point and then a limousine is lit on fire. And it had a kind of very fall of Rome vibe, if you know what I mean. Mm. And so I was like, OK, well, this is clearly what I need to know now is like, how bad is it? And and like, how bad is it going to get? And so I sort of devoted the next four years to, you know, talking to every expert that would talk to me and talking to people in the military about what intervention, you know, military interventions would look like. And 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 just also, you know, going around America a lot to a lot of places that I'd never been to, like rural Ohio and, you know, Oklahoma and places like that to see how bad things were. And, you know, the book is kind of the result of that. So as a, I mean, let's wind up a little bit before the inauguration to the election. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think most of us, most of our most profound recollections of the shock and trauma of the Trump election was election night rather than the inauguration itself. And I I was in New York. I was still living in New York at the time. And uh, I remember the first podcast that I did after the election was with David Plotz of the Slate Political Gab Fest. And it's funny listening now because our main, I mean, we're both traumatized. We're both in shock. We're both kind of buying into, I think Andrew Sullivan wrote a piece saying the Republic repeals itself or something, you know, something about America fundamentally uh, rejecting itself in the, in the election of Trump. And yet most of what I recall being alarmed about was the possibility of international collapse the breakdown of international institutions trump doing something crazy with russia or north korea yeah the global order being completely disrupted and Mm -hmm. he wasn't very either successful or interested in that per se maybe he didn't have long enough to do it and then biden came in before russia invaded ukraine and things have stabilized touch wood but were Mm -hmm. you at the time most exercised by the threat to domestic democracy because you know the events of january 6th and the subsequent kind of uh, uh the earthquake to the institutions of america was not on my radar in 2016 oh i i mean the answer would be both like you know i mean obviously you're australian yes 
Uh, yeah, I just lost you. I just lost you for a second. Just repeat that. You're 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 Australian and I'm Canadian. Yeah, exactly. So we both. Have, I mean, so I would have. Know, yeah, yeah. We know that like the international order is you know these large scale institutions with large buy in from international community, but it's all backed up by American might, right? Like we 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 understand that instinctively, right? In a way that I think a lot of Americans don't, right? And. Yeah. Um, so that, that was very much a worry for me, but I remember like when I was at the inauguration, I was out with some journalists and it was like three in the morning and they were like, you know, come to this party in Georgetown that we're all going to, it was like three in the morning and we get to, we get to this house and it's, it's, it's one of those guys, he's like a low level bureaucrat from the department of agriculture. He's the kind of guy who's responsible for wheat, the price of wheat in 2050, if you know what I mean. One of the, one of those guys who keeps us alive. I want. And, um, yeah, I want, and he, well, just a, just an administrator, just a government administrator. And mm. he brought, he had all the presidential portraits with him and he brought his chair from work. And I was like, and I was sort of sitting in that. I was like, well, where did you get all this stuff? And he's like, well, no one came to replace us at the Department of Agriculture, right? Mm. And like, and, and I mean, the thing was the Department of State was like almost a third of it within two years, I think, of the positions were not filled, right? And so you had this, this absence of power rather than power itself, right? Yeah, right. And I, and I think that, you know, the international community uh, sort of figured out quickly, I was at the Can Canadian embassy for the inauguration as well. And where, you know, they have that big, it's the one big thing Canada does, it has this party on the inauguration, and all the spies from all the world are there, and all the you know, <laughs> cultural attaches from the whole world are there, and they throw a big party. And when he said American carnage, like the you could, you know, that expression, their faces fell, yeah. like that, I literally saw that. Like, yeah. like their their jaws dropped to the floor, the whole of these these international and all these, you know, agents of, and so on. And, mm. but I think they really started to figure out, like, we're going to need to sustain these things. Mm. And I, I think the other thing is that Americans are so uninterested in foreign policy um, that it, it really, it was le less affected than the domestic politics, which of course took a very nasty turn almost immediately. It's interesting, Stephen, that you say that, that it was the, the Department of Agriculture person who hadn't been replaced uh, or who hadn't briefed his uh, his incoming counterparts that, that tweaked exactly. you to this, because that's kind of the same anecdote that Michael Lewis says about in his book, The Fifth Risk, where he, 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 he hears that basically the Trump administration came in and didn't do the thing that every other administration has always done, which is send the people who are going to be in important positions to just meet with the, the outgoing staff to go, all right, well, here's where the toilet is. Here's where you make the coffee. Here are the files about, you know, uh, Bulgaria. Here are the files about Bangladesh. Yeah. Uh, there was none of that, none of that orientation. And Michael Lewis's response to that was to think, oh, holy crap, there are probably a whole bunch of things that are coming down the pike that we haven't thought about these risks that aren't even on our radar that are going to get completely missed because there's no one looking after the, the shop in the well, that's it. And I mean, that, that was the scary, that was the scariest thing that I saw in that inauguration. Right. Like, n n like Canada, Australia, parliamentary democracy, but frankly, every democracy, every country has a continuous bureaucracy, right? Like they have a, they have a continuous civil service that, mm. you know, ultimately shapes the the future of the country and government can come in and do certain things but you know this bureaucracy is kind of forever in america if you don't 
if they're not appointed, they're literally not there. I mean, Canada waited two years for an ambassador from America, right? Two years. Wow. We're their largest yeah. trading partner, right? Yeah. Like, and so, you know, you were saying like before how we were talking about like, well, the, these arguments are often like, it doesn't matter. They're all corrupt. It's like, that's not really what I'm talking about here. Like what I'm talking about here is like, if you have a government that can't appoint an ambassador to your largest trading partner for two years, and, and 11 of those months were during the Biden administration, by the way, um, that's a broken system. Like that's not a right. functional government, essentially. I think right? that's an important, that's, that's actually a really important thing just to explain to people who might be listening in the States or outside of the States, that if you're in the States, you might not realize that there's a whole army of people who run governments in parliamentary democracies who are not elected, uh, who are the brains of the of the implementation of government policy, who understand where all the switches and dials and knobs are and who put every, who put the government's vision into effect. And they don't change between administrations. That's the public service. That's right. And, and you know, you're not, in America, if, that's never been a problem, right? Like Hillary Clinton, when Hillary Clinton, when she started her campaign without a doubt two years before she had a complete list of everyone who was going to fill those roles right like like she knew down to the, the level i'm talking yeah. about like the junior well, she probably had that list from the time she was eight years old i mean she was probably writing exactly. that in her you know <laughs> she yeah. knew what she was doing exactly and you know but trump like literally did not like if it did not appear on television he did not care about it right and and so and so the FDA, the Department of Agriculture, all these things. Well, the Department of State. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the, the, one of the largest militaries in human history and its guidance in foreign policy is terminally understaffed. Right. Like th that's shocking. Right. And it led to all kinds of crazy things that I don't think people realize, like during COVID with the Canadian border and a lot of other borders, like the reason airplanes were able to land is that there was no one to contact in the United States. Like I have, you know, I have friends in the civil service in Canada and they would be like, well, we're trying to do this thing, but there's literally no one to talk to. Like wow. that person hasn't been appointed yet. Wow. Right? So, you know, like it, it actually creates these. Like, yeah, it's like I mean, it, it's on, on that on that on that front, Stephen. Here's an anecdote that yeah. you might like, which is when when Donald Trump won. As you know, it's customary for all other world leaders to make a congratulatory phone call to the you know to their allies when someone when there's a new incoming leader. The Australian Prime Minister uh, tried to call Trump to congratulate him, and didn't know how. And so the Australian <laughs> Prime Minister called Greg Norman on Greg Norman, the golfer's <laughs> mobile phone and said, mate, I, I, think this one. I think you've had some, uh, you've had some contact with Donald, haven't you? And Greg Norman said, yeah, I've got his number in my phone. I'll just text it to you. Greg Norman yeah. texted the Australian prime minister, Donald Trump's private phone number. And that was how the Aussie PM got through to Donald Trump. Like it's, I mean, that's Jesus it. Christ, right? It's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. But, but you so, know, I mean, yeah. I would say like from my reading in the book, like, like it's, these stories are, horrifying slash amusing or like horror hilarious. We have to come up with some word that combines horrifying with hilarious, but, but you know, like the structure, Trump is just a symptom. Like the, the breakdown of government continues. Like, it's not like, it's not like Biden got elected and all of this has stopped. Like it took right. 11 months for them to appoint an ambassador um, because hyperpartisanship is so toxic that they can't even do basic functions. And they, and they keep, you know, with the debt limit, they keep threatening to, you know, blow up their, uh, you know, their debt arrangements. I mean, they're they're playing a very risky game with lack of government, and um, and, and you know, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, I think that's only one part of what I'm talking about in the book. But yeah, 
let's let's expand on toxic. let's expand on this then because uh, there will be yeah. there will be many listeners who say yeah of course the trump administration was a shit show everybody knew that we knew that at the time and whether they support trump or not they you know maybe they they regard that as being one of the liabilities of having a breath of fresh air that was able to sweep out some of the k street lobbyists and the all of the institutional people who they resented being in in washington and all the handshake deals between wall street and the establishment maybe they think trump was something different and yeah it was chaotic but whatever or maybe they think he was a, a real threat to democracy but he's gone we have a new administration. Yeah. He might come back, but that'll be four years. The institutions held fundamentally. America didn't die. It won't die. I, I spoke to Tyler Cowan recently on the podcast. He's he's very optimistic. He's very bullish. He's like, you know what? People have bet against America a million times in the past. We have a lot going for us. We're incredibly innovative. Uh, you know, we will. There will be holes, and there will be gaps, and there will be foibles, and we will be stymied in ways, and we will nut our way through. Why do you disagree? Well, I mean, the United States is a textbook case of a country headed for civil war, right? I mean, people always say America survived. I, I tend to think like, yes, you have survived, but you did have a civil war that cost, you know, 3% of your population died in. Right. Right. But hang on. You got. I think you have to elaborate. You have to elaborate on the hand grenade that you just threw. That America is a textbook case of a a country primed for a civil war. Why? Um. Well, there. I mean, there are a number of reasons. Uh, It's what they would call a complex cascading system. Um, You have, on the one hand, the decline of trust in institutions generally, which is part of what we're talking about. But what we've talked about is only a tiny part of it. Um, you also have like the Supreme Court, which, whose numbers are now below 25% of the feeling of legitimacy. You have a hyperpartisanship that has essentially rendered basic functions of government, like appointing diplomats and so on, uh, you know, extremely, extremely dang- uh, difficult to do. Um, you have a sense, you know, 33% of Americans of both parties think that violence might be required for if their party loses the next election, you have less than 20% of the country who feels that the electoral system is a fair representation of the will of the people. And so when you have these, these structures that are where you're in between democracy and autocracy, um, like autocracies are very stable, democracies are very stable. But when you're in the gray zone, where it's, you're, it's unclear which, which system you're in, that tends to lead to huge spikes in violence. Um, when you combine that with inequality levels that literally America's never seen before, like America was not this unequal in 1776, when you combine it with, you know, fraying environmental uh, disasters that are increasingly felt and which are also tend to be a major contributor to civil war um, to it, around the world. And you also have the demographic reality of America by 2040 being a majority minority country, you know, everywhere in the world that that happens in India, in Africa, in South America, where these in, you know, insider groups lose power, um, political violence is almost, uh, it's a correlate. I mean, it's very clearly caused by that. And, or it, it, it tends to lead that way anyway. So you have all of these factors that are feeding into each other. Um, and they're leading to a perfect storm. I mean, you know, I, when I wrote this book, like it, and it was before January 6th, it was before a lot of other things. Um, you know, the, the date that really scared me was 2040. 
um, because that's when America becomes a majority minority country. By, by 2040, you know, 30% of the country will control 70% of the Senate. So by that point, the idea that the American democratic system represents the will of the people will be completely vanished. Like, I, I think it's already mostly dead now, but it's it, it, it really is not. It, by that point, it will be completely clear to every person on the planet that America really isn't a democracy. Um, you know, that that uh, like that was the date that scared me, 2040. But, you know, it's accelerating much faster than I thought in the book. You're, and I think you can see that already pretty clearly. You're talking about political violence almost interchangeably with civil war. So let's clarify some things here. Because yeah. when I hear civil war, I think Bosnia, I think Rwanda, you know, if I then put it in an American context, okay, I go back to, you know, the Confederates and people fighting across uh, across trenches. What is yeah. a civil war in the 21st century in the, in a rich Western democracy like America? It, I mean, it's very, very hard to tell. And I mean, I don't want to pretend that I know things that I don't know, right? Like, I mean, that's one thing in the book that I, like, I'm very specific about the models that I'm using and they're but I mean, you know, in the book, I say that the chances of a civil war are about 67 percent, because that's the, you know, coral, that, that's the large, uh, that's what the experts tend to agree on. And but how are you defining where, a civil war? Like, would the kind civil of civil unrest a thousand that we saw in the late deaths a year? A, a, a like, thousand the, combatant the, deaths a year. Yeah, that's how Prio, the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, defines it. They define civil strife as 25 combatant deaths a year. So America has been over that for quite a while since 2008 basically but does that um, mean also... sorry to interrupt but does that mean that yeah. the kind of civil unrest that we saw in the in the late 1960s when martin luther king was shot and bobby kennedy was shot and you had riots and so on i mean that would kill more than a thousand people a year if that was sustained no on no that, the, scale. the 60s the 60s were were um those riots certainly would not be counted among political violence, like the riots after MLK associated, like the, the political, even today, like the definition of political violence is very specific. Like, for example, the shooting in Buffalo where 12 African-Americans were killed, that, that would not count. Um, that Like that would count that even though, I, I mean, to me, that is very explicitly political violence. That is an ineffective right. pogrom, right? Um, or even, you know, the, the shooting in... Um, in Highland Park, which also had some political dimension to it, but that would not count in any of these tabulations. So, you know, th th that, that, that in itself is a bit of a problem. But, you know, I think you can get a little caught up in the numbers, like, because I don't, like, a thousand combatant deaths a year, they're using that for often pretty small countries, right? Like, America is an enormous country yeah. with a huge diversity and a huge geographical variety, right? So, I mean, those are the technical definitions of it. The important thing here is that trust in, in institutions is declining and what's taking its place is rising political violence. And those numbers are only going up. So if you're asking me what it looks like, like it's not, um, it's certainly not the first civil war. It's not like, you know, battles lines over state lines or something like that. Like it's not Battle of Bull Run or Harper's Ferry or anything like that. It's insurgency and counterinsurgency and the attempt to control terrorism and the attempt to control insurgency, which always leads historically to more insurgency, right? So, I mean, the worst case scenario would be something like Syria and the better case scenario would be something like uh, Northern Ireland. Right. But those are those are just to give you a sense of like, I, I don't really mean that in terms of the scale of the violence when it comes to Syria. I'm just I'm merely saying like, 
insurgencies that splinter very quickly, that take on lives of their own very quickly, and which are incredibly chaotic. Like the, I, the struggle is, is not help. between two, two sides. The struggle is between order and chaos. Right. That makes a lot more sense. And Northern Ireland is a good is a good example during the Troubles where you might have something like a, a Shin, an American Sinn Féin, which is committed to... Yeah. Uh, yeah, committed and to... And certainly Northern Ireland, Ireland never got anywhere near a thousand combatant deaths a year. Like never even mm. close, right? Mm. Like it, it dipped over the line of civil strife. So, I mean, if you look at political murders in the United States... Um, they're much more sizable than, you know, people don't like, they're much more sizable than the numbers suggest exactly because these things like the mass shooting in Buffalo don't count. Right. Uh, Like they don't count in the government statistics. So, you know, like there are, I'm very specific in the book about the technical definitions, but I'm not sure how relevant they are here. The point is widespread political violence, which is horrific enough. Right. Like, and, and, legitimate insurgencies you know i mean what we saw yesterday in the january 6th hearings like that is an insurgency right like that's what like when you when you hear about insurgencies in other countries like that i mean that's what they're talking about yeah Uh, yeah so, so you know i mean there are definitional points that i think really are important but i i think it's also important to keep you know the bigger picture in play here. Totally. I mean, I just think that in order to have a conversation that people don't find ridiculous or scaremongering, mm-hmm. it's helpful for them to have a picture in their head of what yeah. we're talking about, because if they're thinking about civil war era, civil war stuff, they might go, well, that's not going to happen. But Absolutely. if what you're talking about is, is just it's living, insurgency. yeah, is just living with a constant background uh, rate of, uh, of violence, disorder, anarchy, you know, armed, right-wing militia groups and who knows armed like woke militia groups i don't even know kind of you know blowing up cafes occasionally and trying to storm state capitals in order to to change governments and completely mistrusting electoral counts and uh, you know trying to assassinate state uh officials who are counting who are tabulating votes and things like that then that becomes that's already there right reality i mean that's that's already happening that's what i'm talking about in this book i'm not talking about like I'm talking about insurgent struggle. Like, that's what I mean by the Civil War. Like, yeah, I mean, it's not, um, it's not pitch battles. But on the other hand, it's still scary enough. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, I I don't feel like I need to be um, scarier than the reality at all. Mm. Like, that was the one thing I learned doing this book. Like, it's there's, there's no need to exaggerate at all. Right. To like, like if you go and talk to these people and you go like you go and talk to the, the, the far right people and you get with and you, and you write down what they tell you and you show what they do. It's all scary enough. Like there's 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 absolutely no need to to, you know, juice up the reality because the so, reality is really scary. Stephen, there can be a, a maybe a cliche, especially outside of America, that the people who are who are behind January sixth, they're all wearing Viking horns and they're tin pot crazies, and they're all QAnon, and they think that Bill Gates is injecting us with five G uh, chips, yeah. and the vaccines are a hoax, and the pandemic was planned. And we can sort of write them off as, well, we've always had loonies around. But I mean, one of the things that you talk about in the book is there's actually an entire cohort of people who are quite reasonable and well-educated and have pretty clear plans about what this would look like. Who are they? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I never have, like the scary people here are not the people wearing Viking helmets, right? Like, 
before 2008 and 2008 was really the turning point, which we could probably talk about later. Like there was, there were obviously these lunatics, right? Like the Texas separatist movement before 2008 was guys out in the middle of the wilderness with too many guns who would start gunfights with the police and then all get killed. Right. Like that's who they were. Now they're a major force in the Texas Republican party and have actually managed to get it on the ballot. Right. Um, this is a different order of business. Like there, there certainly are like one of the scariest things to me was like when you're talking to these Nazis who have law degrees and you ask them questions like, okay, so how are you going to build this white ethno state in Oregon? And they say, oh, well, we'll model our constitution on Japan's and Israel's. And, you know, we, if you look at these, there's these legal precedents to do here and we get, they actually have a system. Right. It's not a guy with born to lose tattooed on his forehead uh, who, you know, is probably robbing liquor stores. Right. right. Like it, right. It, it's a it's a it's a different order of business and, a, and one that needs to be taken with maximum seriousness. I mean, I remember when I interviewed Michael German, who was an FBI agent who worked undercover with white power for a long time. Um, he said, you know, when they found out that he didn't have tattoos, um, like serious people took him from his little gang of biker Nazis and said, like, you're not going to talk to any of those people ever again. We're going to run you on school boards and we're going to we're going to get you in positions of power. And then when you look at the Oath Keepers list that got leaked, um, you know, the 40,000 names, there's a ton of them who are in police departments, who are on school boards, who are, you know, low level state senators, even like they, they have infiltrated these institutions very effectively. And, um, and, and, and that's why I think like, it's going to actually be very hard for the Department of Justice to deal with them. Um, because they, like, you know, Michael German said to me, like, you cannot, one of the things you can't do with domestic terrorism in the United States is do a watch list, which is the single most effective way of fighting terrorism, right, of, of any kind, right, is that you send to the police departments the list of people to watch out for. And they can't do that in America because if you send it to these police forces, they just tell their friends who are on the list and they mm -hmm. and they disappear. Right. So that's a lot more troubling than, you know, the the, the freaks of the past. Right. Um, so so, how so does you this... should tell that to Tyler Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, so how does this like America has okay. stumbled along through some violent, but it's also had some periods of extreme violence. Let me, have, let me, let me channel, yeah. let me channel the, 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 the Tyler perspective then, which would be, yeah. So you've got all these kooks, right? Uh, you've got all these people who believe in the violent overthrow of a system that, that they perceive as going too far, or at least the, or at least being subversive towards that system, even if they're not mm -hmm. deploying violence right now. And let's say they all, they all gang up and they get their Oregon, they want their Oregon ethno state and they've got their uh, ethno nationalist constitution, which is only for white people. And they, what, declare uh, that they are a, now a state. Well, mm -hmm. doesn't the, doesn't the, the national government in Washington, D.C. just go, no, you're not. And that's not happening. And as long as the Supreme Court and the military and the administration hold, doesn't that just have the power to quash anything? Did you hear what you just said? Because what you just said is if the Supreme Court and the military and the presidency hold. So that's a lot in the United States of now of 2022. That's a lot to ask. 
right? I mean, like, what happens when, like, Senator Josh Hawley raises his fist in support of people who then he has to be hidden from, who are sacking the institution that he, that the, the vandals who are about to sack the institution that he belongs to, he raises his fist in support of them. So, you know, yet, if, the, if we were in a position where the government and the military and the Supreme Court were all filled with people who understood inherently the threat of white terrorism and white domestic, you know, domestic terrorism as a reality, I might agree with you. I mean, that that is the subject of the first chapter, like the military's plans for what to do if a county, I mean, forget a state, but like if a county uh, decided that they were no longer part of the United States and decided on the doctrine of interposition, how they would interact. Incredibly complicated, very difficult. But that, in a way, is a best case scenario. Because it, it's entirely pres- possible that you'll have a president who has a lot of sympathies with the white power movement. And it's, right. you, you have a Supreme Court that's, you know, definitely in favor of supporting right wing causes generally. So if the Republican Party supports that, it's entirely possible that they will. So, you know, you're hoping that these institutions are there to prevent this from happening, but they're already going. They're, they're, they're not, I don't think they're in any way a bulwark. I, I, I would not have any faith in them to resist such a movement at all. Right. So let's suppose you've got President Donald Trump Jr. or President Marjorie Taylor Greene or President Tucker Carlson, who, and they're sympathetic towards whatever this civil unrest or insurgency is against, mm-hmm. uh, you know, phony claims of ballots stuffed with fake diebold machine, uh, you know, uh, uh, ballots that have been manufactured by China or Iran or something. And there's all this conspiracy theorizing and it's being whipped up. You talk about some of the flashpoints where this could actually spill over. One that I thought was interesting is infrastructure, is that America has all this crumbling infrastructure, these bridges and things that need repairing. And there are a lot of locals who disagree with the role that the federal government might play in rebuilding infrastructure. I hadn't thought about that as a flashpoint. How would that play out? Well, I mean, you know, to whenever you have a federal government of any kind, Australian, Canadian, American involved in any project, it of course is bureaucratic and and, and complicated and involves people being upset. And, you know, like to build a bridge requires a lot of annoying paperwork and a lot of annoying uh, system. And, you know, you have to sort of have faith in the system to allow that to happen. That's completely broken um, right now in the United States. I mean, you just have large groups of people. I mean, I don't have a specific number, but certainly as many as 30% of the United States who have such distrust in the government that they really hate everything that it does at all. I mean, the contradiction that the the United States is entering right now is that it has anti-government patriots, which to me is the you know, dealing, trying to get wrap your head around the hard right in the United States is incredibly hard. But I think one thing that they do all share in common is that they, they, they consider their hatred of government to be a sign of patriotism. They love their country by hating the government. Mm. Right. And, um, you know, so you, you have this group of people who love their country by hating the government and the government comes in and says, well, we need an environmental protection agency report on the viability of repairing this bridge. I mean, it's already happened in Arizona where you have uh, and in several cases where sheriffs, local county sheriffs have essentially defied federal uh, authorities on 
on these plans. Also, you know, that's not a, um, a strictly right wing phenomenon. Like in California, they made Jeff, Jeff Sessions take them to court to argue nullification for their status as refugee cities for immigrants. Right. Like they they were they were essentially nullifying federal government orders when they did mm. that. So, you, you know, you have um, you have these contests of power where people are almost always going to side with their local government. Right. And so, you know, it, it's not it's not hard to imagine, uh, which is what I do in the book, somebody, you know, a, a sheriff essentially resisting the government authority and then that becoming a flashpoint. That's how I imagined it. Um, in the end, it actually ended up happening in Canada first, like, you know, with the oh, Freedom yeah? Convoy and the, oh, and, the, yeah, and, right. and the and the COVID resistance, which is much the same thing. Right. right. right? It's like you have government mandates from, you know, academics in Washington and people just don't want to listen, right? They just won't have anything to do with it. So the and, so flesh this out for us, Stephen. The, so the picture is, you know, the federal government is coming in to shut down a, a, a crumbling bridge and rebuild a new one, but the locals like the bridge because it's still working okay. So they set up their local their local sheriff and police department are maybe on the side of the militia that's holding that holds the bridge and then the feds don't know quite what to do and they've got orders to do one thing and the locals want another thing. Uh, and that doesn't, I mean, my instinct is still perhaps naively that, oh, well, that just gets de-escalated because professional people will come in and they will figure out how to de-escalate. They will either starve I mean, out you people on the bridge. Have, you've been, you've, you've been, you, your Australian heart is showing there, right? I mean, like, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it'll de-escalate. Serious people come and they're also, they'll all work it out. I mean, the grown-ups will arrive. The grown-ups yeah, will well, always yeah, arrive. Yeah, exactly. Even. We're talking yeah. about the United States in 2022. <laughs> Right. Things don't de-escalate like like we're we, America's in a position where every everything becomes political so rapidly that it's absurd. Right. Like, I mean, you can buy LGBTQ positive cookies at in Oreos, you know, in the grocery store and you can buy homophobic chicken at Chick-fil-A. Right. <laughs> like, like, you know, like literally everything. I want both. Yeah. I want to just have a big, well, big homophobic. I mean, that would be a night. That would actually be a pretty tasty meal. A little chick fillow with a little uh, rainbow just rainbow some... stuffing uh, Oreo. That'd be that'd be not a bad not a bad uh, lunch. But my point is here, like the the idea that the grown ups are going to come in and solve this thing, like that's gone. Like the grown ups are gone. The grown ups are the grown ups are that guy I was with in Washington. Uh, you know, it, where he's like taking the presidential pictures off the wall because nobody mm. wants to hear what he has to say. Mm. Right. No one is minding the shop. So, yeah. it, you know, like I, I too would love to believe that it would de-escalate it and serious people would be grownups about it. But when you look at local politics in the United States and, you know, it's not even in these for like, even in things like upstate New York, the, the tension in American administrative questions just get so intense so quickly right like it like it, it threatens to blow up on the local level all the time and uh, you know on, 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 like in new hampshire around school funding around there's there's just so many examples of this where it's like radical politics suddenly takes this hold on a place what's the new hampshire example just i have a lot of connections oh, with that state my in-laws in are in new hampshire there was a new the big story in the new york times about um a group of, uh, what are they called? There's, there's a special group. I've, you know, I, I lose track of these far right movements. Um, this one is uh, where they just want 
no education funding. And they came over and took over a, a town of like 800 and basically cut the education budget in half, which essentially destroyed public education in this town. And there was a huge fight about it. And all the locals came out and resisted this group, which was, right. it's a happy story in the end. But, you know, I talked to Live friends. Live free or die, and, baby. That's the state motto. Well, even for, but it was interlopers. It was somebody from Arizona, you know, from some Southern state who'd come up to New, like New Hampshireites have a, a more kind of uh, like live free or die is a good motto, but there's also like, we would like our children to be educated. Yeah, right. Live free or die can be a good motto if it's taken in the yeah. right context. It's a bit weird for me whenever I'm there to see it emblazoned on the side of a I know. car because it seems like a threat. <laughs> it's like, if you don't live free, we're going to fucking shoot you in the face. Like, I, what no, if I don't want to live free the way you want me to live free? <laughs> how about just live free? Like, why don't we yeah, just change it right. to just live free? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. We can all agree with that. Sure. Yeah, or how about how about <laughs> live how about live with the appropriate, uh, you know, uh, a level of freedom that is conducive to your flourishing? That would be the more Canadian or <laughs> <laughs> oh no the, the canadian one would be live reasonably yeah live reasonably. yeah that's right you know the uh, i mean you know the that, line, has, you know the that comes with its own downsides though I mean, you know the line about the, about, about the revolutionary protest march in uh, in the uk where the brits say what do we want slow and incremental change when do we want it as soon as it's reasonable for everybody uh yeah right. yeah, yeah exactly. well story. i mean that's canada like the motto of canada is not um life liberty and the pursuit of happiness it's peace order and good government Right. Yeah. And yeah. like, I, I mean, I think people who are descended from parliamentary democracy as opposed to Republican democracy, it's obviously a very different. I mean, <laughs> let's not say it, but it's a better system. Right. Mm. Like, it, it, well, the American, I mean, the Americans say it as well. There's this whole episode of the West Wing where, you know, the, they, there's this fledgling democracy abroad that comes to the White House saying, we want your American system for us. And, uh, you know, all the characters in the White House are like, no, 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 no. What we always tell new countries is don't use our system. It's not a good one. There's too much power in the executive. It doesn't work properly. Uh, you yeah. have a parliamentary democracy. They're much more stable. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, it was kind of offensive to me intellectually to read that, like, the most stable, most prosperous countries in the world are all constitutional monarchies. I mean, it's upsetting. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, like, it's not the kind of thing I want to particularly think that you need this, like, ridiculous <laughs> queen and king. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, right. I mean, it's all so absurd. But, like, you know, nonetheless, that's, I mean, that tends to be how these things work. I mean, you know, not that I'm opposed to republicanism. Like, the American system to be serious, isn't it has worked for a long time. But I mean, part of the major problem here is that they have a constitution that's nearly 250 years old. And, mm -hmm. you know, the extraordinary thing about writing this book, I mean, everywhere I went, without exception, they worship the constitution, right? Like you're going to talk to a Texas separatist. And like, I come from a country with a really active separatist movement, right? That's nearly ended my country twice, mm. right? And you know, they don't in my lifetime, right? Like you're Quebec talking about Quebec, Quebec seceding. Yeah. Quebec separatists don't say, well, we want to separate, but we want to stay true to the British North American Act of 1867. <laughs> like that's, but you talk to Texas separatists and they absolutely say we're absolutely within our constitutional right. Same for California separatists, mm -hmm. same for, same for Oath Keepers. I mean, Oath Keepers, that's an oath to the constitution, right? And the same for all these far-right movements. I mean, only the most extreme, the accelerationists, the Nazis, really don't believe in the Constitution. And at the same time, you know, New York Times editors all worship the Constitution. It's, it, it, so I think it's, in effect, become this religious document.
it's like it's like biblical commentary mm, at this point mm. where it's just actually divorced from reality i mean not that it was wasn't a work of great genius right it i mean obviously it was one of the most important documents ever written by people but it's 250 years old and and so much of what it says just does not apply to the the realities of 21st century america i mean yeah ultimately what they need here is a second republic right like like ultimately, you know, this this constitution is I mean, that's why I was heartened by what I read in the New York Times about people understanding that structural change is necessary because it's like it's no no one, no country could survive having this system like this system is just fundamentally broken from the from the get go. Like, it's I mean, not, I don't think just, but do you need a new constitution apply. in the Second Republic or do you need to just take away the I mean, some of the more egregious, some of the most egregiously undemocratic things are things that were invented recently, like the filibuster being required. Why do you need a supermajority to get anything passed? There are no other democracies that require a supermajority for everything. Just don't have a filibuster. Wouldn't that solve half of it? Well, I mean, I, I think the larger point here is that, like, you know, Jefferson said a constitution should only last 19 years. Right. He said after that, it's a contract with the dead. I mean, when was the last constitutional amendment? I think it was 93. It was a very negligible one around um, certain uh, around the uh, changes to the nuclear code. Like they've been able to do that, but like meaningful constitutional change, which is how a country changes direction. Right. Like how it fundamentally changes its direction as a nation is inconceivable at this point. I mean, sometimes a constitutional change is the way that a, a country changes. But in the case of many parliamentary democracies, I mean, I think you're putting your finger on something with regard to the religiosity of the attitude towards the constitution as this kind of document handed down by Moses along with the tablets, that yeah. that there's a kind that temperamentally, there's just a kind of pragmatism in other countries that sort of regardless of what the founding document says, we kind of know that we all have to muddle through in the 21st century. So courts and governments just kind of figure out what the best thing is that has the largest sort of uh, buy-in from the yeah. demos and you muddle through whereas that well, doesn't seem British, to be the right? yeah that's a very british attitude towards things yeah. and we've britain inherited that in no that's britain right and i mean look i don't know what the canadian constitution says but the australian 1982. one 1982 i mean it was written in 1982 oh. <laughs> right? wow okay well ours was like, from 1901 was but it doesn't say much i mean there's no bill of rights right. there's most of our most of what the, the freedoms that we enjoy come from you know common law and that's true in new zealand and and uh, yeah. so i i i think that there's I, i'm not sure i think you're setting the bar very high to in, to require that americans uh, abandon their fealty to the founding document and also are willing to create a new one, especially given the risks of the far right kind of coming to occupy the writing of that new constitution. I mean, who's to say that it's going to be the good guys creating the amendments that that you want to see? I mean, isn't isn't the better thing to incrementally try to turn the volume down on the the culture war and find a, find the smoothest and least revolutionary path out of the mess? Well, I mean, that would be wonderful, but like, obviously that's correct. Like, I mean, what you're saying there is like, I mean, but that's like me saying, I want to, I want to be able to dunk a basketball. Like, <laughs> like, like you're, you're right. Like I would love to be able to dunk a basketball, but I'm probably never going to be able to do that. Right. right. Like, but I mean, you're probably never going to be able to change the constitution of the United States in a way that's acceptable to all parties either. Now, that's true. But I think when you look at the other options here, which are violence and secession, 
Um, you know, because you're operating like these Australian common law practices, New Zealand common law practices, those are in countries with that are, first of all, much smaller, much less divided, much more homogenous, right, in all ways. Um, it's certainly I don't Canada, like that. Argument. I've never bought that. It's, I, I find that as an excuse that Americans use. Oh, we're so big and chaotic, we can't come together. Australia is more multi-ethnic than America. Our cities are more multicultural than the average really? American city. America's yeah. 59% white. Australia is more white than that? I mean, less white than that? I mean, Canada... Well, it depends, we, how, we it depends how you count. It depends I mean, how you count white. But I mean, white. look, half the population of Australia has arrived since the Second World War. So, I mean, you, right. if you're talking yeah. purely about skin color, then maybe we can yeah. quibble at the edges. But but I it is, it, as as a, as a nation of migrants, we actually are the nation of migrants much more than the yeah. United States. And and we sure. have had to, we have had to, and they're not all English, you know, we have had to create no, a, a sure. buy-in from a, from large uh, heterogeneous, you know, populations. And, and so I, and yeah, 25 million people is not 300 and whatever million people, but it's big enough that you could you could make excuses for why you can't possibly stitch this many people together. I mean, a New Zealand if if Australia was fall if Australia was enduring the kind of cultural and political schisms that America is, you can imagine a New Zealander in a population of three and a half or four million or whatever it is looking across the ditch and saying. Well, of course, you can't manage Australia. It's just too big. You can't do, you know, you can't bring 25 million people together. I just think you're always going to be able to fall back on that. And there are, but you I, know. I think what I'm talking about more is like North versus South, different political realities. I mean, yes, right. You're, 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 you're like, it, it's not just like racial diversity or anything like that, although that is hugely important. But you're dealing with countries that ultimately have really different frames of reference. I mean, in the United States right now, there are countries with two, two totally separate realities. Right. Like in terms of what information gets to them, in terms mm. of what they believe to be the facts of the universe, um, you are in, you, there are at least two totally different countries. Yes. And I think also it's worth remembering that the, what makes America great, like why we love it, why I love it, is its huge openness. Right. It's openness to new things. It's openness to, you know, you can really have your own facts in the United States. That's why it produces new religions all the time. Mormonism, etc., and new art forms all the time, whereas Canada and Australia don't, right? Yeah. Like, like you know, and like that's also like what's so horrible about this tragic, really, is that what makes America beautiful—that openness, that ability to think your own thoughts—that's what's eating it up, right? Mm. Like that's what's that's what's eating it up from the inside is that there's no common framework and you know the amazing thing is have you ever read washington's farewell address no it's an amazing document it's one of those it's it, it, at a time it was read um at every like every school school person school boy and school girl would have had to memorize it like it was a very important document in american life for a long time before the second world war and then it sort of fell off after that but it's his warning about how the republic will be lost and if you read it, I mean, he is, it's incredible. It's a description of right now. Like it is, it, he, he foresaw exactly how the Republic would fall. Um, mm -hmm. Like he, it's, it, he warned against partisanship by geography and party. Right. And like that, that, those are the things that are, that are shredding America at, at the most basic level. Right. This, this fact that, that, that neither on either people on either side just hate each other so much that they can't come to any kind of agreement for the good of the country. Yeah. I want right. to, I want to get to that. I want to get to negative partisanship yeah. and like the culture sure. wars. I would just also put a on, I think it's really interesting what you say about the, 
the problem in America, not if it's not its size, then it's it's its diversity. And I, I think we sometimes misdiagnose this as ethnic diversity, or it can sometimes bleed into an almost white nationalist kind of sounding right. thing where we say the problem with America is there are just like I remember Charlton Heston at the end of Bowling for Columbine. Uh, saying, you know, the problem with guns in America is that basically there are lots of black people. Like, you know, I mean, right. other countries don't have the gun problem because they don't have as many ethnic minorities all shooting each other. Uh, yeah. And so I don't, I don't want that to become the thing that Americans get to blame. One thing that I would also note is, I mean, we can't leave out of the conversation social media. We can't leave out of the conversation right-wing conventional broadcasts like Rush Limbaugh and Tucker Carlson. And we can't leave the out of the conversation... Yeah. Well, look, this may be a changing phenomenon over time as more and more of us yeah. spend more time siloed in our own echo chambers on social. But we also can't leave out the lack of public broadcasting in the United States. I mean, I Absolutely. thank God having moved back to Australia. Doctrine. Yeah, but also the, the, a space with a space free from commercial constraints and free from government interference where newsmakers can just do news and people can have conversations with themselves uh, in uh, in like Habermas's ideal of sort of just a, a free open space where you're not constantly right. chasing clicks and you're not constantly obeying advertisers and you're not constantly obeying political functionaries. I do, I do cherish the fact that, uh, you know, most of our Western democracies have a BBC or a CBC yeah. or an ABC or whatever it might, might be, but let's just park that. Cause one thing that I just want to come back to is you mentioned Quebec and yeah. I hadn't thought about this. Like why is Texas secession so, unacceptable if i don't know what the attitude towards quebec nationalism is in in canada at the moment but when i've been in i was in quebec in the in the 90s uh and that was i guess in the lead up to when was the referendum in the 90s 95 so it must have been just after it must have been the year after the referendum and i didn't think there was anything traitorous about this and i don't think there's anything traitorous about scottish independence for example so why are we okay with those but this whole conversation well why can't america split up if if texas wants to split up you know it's the legacy of the civil war it's one of them i mean you know one of the like the last chapter of my book is about the possibilities of secession which i don't think at this point in american history is a worst case scenario like i don't at all like, I think it's something that should be taken very seriously. If you mm. if you broke America up into four countries, they would all be amazing countries and they would be more themselves, right? I mean, what, the amazing thing is when you go and talk to these people is like, and some people on the left have real trouble believing this, but like people on the right in America feel every bit as much under siege as people on the left, right? Like they feel that they are losing their country all yeah. the time. Yeah. Right. And they and they and, and that they're they're just um, you're in a situation here where the political differences are so real and they're also geographically bounded, m- most of them, um, that having two countries or four countries is not to me is not an insane conversation to be having at all. Right. Um, you know, but the problem is like in Quebec, because we you know, in Canada, because we face this separatist threat, like we actually have worked out laws and so that we know what happens, right? Like if Quebec separates, if they win this many votes in this on these set terms, then we're going to separate on terms agreeable to all the parties, right? And we're going to, it's not going to be violent and no one's going to try and suppress anyone, you know, like we're, we're just going to do this like reasonable human beings. Because of the 14th Amendment, 
Um, and because Americans don't really understand the difficulties with the UN, that they don't that they would be bound by those decisions of the UN, they don't really understand how bureaucratically nightmarish it would be to secede from the United States. And that's that's by Lincoln's design, right? Like that's by the design of the people who let who who emerged from the Civil War. They wanted to make it inconceivable. And it's a real, I mean, I, I would say it's even one of the causes of civil war in mm. the United States right now, because you can't have reasonable conversations about secession, which are, I think, are, you know, especially when you look at the aftermath of um, the abortion decision, like you're already going to be in a country with essentially two legal systems, right? Yeah. And, yeah. or, or, or more, right? I, I mean, what's incredible about it is like, you see the chaos on county by county lines, right? In some of these states, they're so unprepared for this eventuality um, that they they don't have the legal mechanisms in place to deal with it uh, or administer never mind you know administering it like you're going to actually send police to arrest people like on what terms how are you going to do right. that no right. one has any answers to any of these questions right and and so yeah like i think there's i i think this is the chaos that i'm describing in when like you're reminding me sort of arrived when I lived in New York, I used to jokingly say that Lincoln never should have fought the Civil War, because if you'd had the North and the South, then eventually I think slavery would have just collapsed under it, under the weight of its own moral contradictions. And then you'd have this kind of poor rump that could go about its business. And you'd have this, uh, this energetic, innovative uh, country in the North that wouldn't have to worry about all these culture war issues. And I'm just remembering, I mean, I was partly facetious because I think it was a noble war, but it, it, as you say, like, there's no reason why America has to, in perpetuity, be constituted exactly as it is right now, if people want to want to say bye-bye to it. Do you remember the, the essay that went viral in 2004? I'm just looking it up, called Fuck the South. No, I didn't see that one. I, don't, I mean, there have been a bunch of those. Like, I saw is, there was, like, the New Republic wrote one, and then the Federalists wrote a bunch of them. This is anonymous. I mean, it's called, it's subtitled, A Disgruntled Massachusetts Voter Gets It Off His his Chest. Here, I've just found it. I'll, I'll, I'll read it for but, the You know, the Washington page. Post ran a piece, like, last month saying Texas wants to separate good riddance. I mean, that's right. not a blog post. That's, like, the Washington Post. Right. I mean, this is what I mean. You know, I honestly believe that that piece in the Washington Post would have been inconceivable six months ago, like, yeah, like, right. or a year ago, for sure. Like, they would yeah. not have run somebody on the in the north saying, you know, fuck this southern state. Like, mm. like, this is it, it's, you know, there have always been people saying this stuff. It's just mm. they've, they're moving from cranks to the Washington Post. Right, right. right. I mean, I personally feel I've always felt like, I didn't, I, you know, I had this in the book, and then I cut it. And it's one of those like, you know, kill your babies. It was like one of those <laughs> passages like that I loved, but I thought, well, I better kill it because I love it so much. And um, it was that every side in North America, the wrong side has won every war. Like it would have been much better if the indigenous people beat the French. It would have been much better if the French had beat the English. It would have been much better if the English had beaten the Americans. And it would have been much better if the South had won because the divisions are still there. Right. Like, the, like not to say that the South was morally right in that war, obviously, or that, you know, th that that was a war for um, uh, for, for just cause. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But what you're dealing with in the South is like in, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, there's so much terrorism. There's so much mm -hmm. insurgent conflict from the Ku Klux Klan and the Red Brigades that in effect, by 1877, the North exhausted gives up anyway. And yes, says, right. And then and, you and get says, 
Yeah, you get and the then you get the whole rule. whole twentieth century of Jim Crow and stuff because it, of... Jim Crow, and and they get home rule, and you know, effectively, yeah. that's what's happened in Canada, right? Like Quebec is technically Canadian, but they do whatever they want. They like mm. if they if they pass a law, we don't fight it. No one in Canada, the federal government is not fighting it, right? I so want, like, I, yeah, Stephen, but I, like, I I want to I want to channel this because I'm just scanning this. Listen to listen to the uh, yeah. I'll just please. take a couple of minutes for the listen. So this is in the aftermath of George W. Bush's re-election. This is November 11, 2004. Uh, fuck the South. Fuck them. We should have let them go when they wanted to leave. Fighting for the right to keep slaves. Yeah, those are the states we want to keep. And now what do we get? We're the fucking arrogant Northeast liberal elite. How about this for arrogant? The South is the real America, the authentic America. Really? Because we fucking founded this country, assholes. Those founding fathers you keep going on and on about, all that bullshit about what you think they meant by the Second Amendment. Who do you think those wig-wearing, lacy-shirt-sporting revolutionaries were? They were fucking blue staters, dickhead. Boston, Philadelphia, New York, hello. Think there might be a reason all the fucking monuments are up here in our backyard? No. No, get the fuck out. We're not letting you visit the Liberty Bell and fucking Plymouth Rock anymore until you get over your real American selves and start respecting those other nine amendments. Who do you think those fucking stripes on the flag are for? Nine are for fucking blue states. Get it? We started this shit, so don't get all uppity about how real you are, you Johnny-come-lately, ooh, I've been a state for almost a hundred years, dickheads. Fuck off. Arrogant? You want to talk to us Northeasterners about fucking arrogance? Maybe I wouldn't be so fucking arrogant if I wasn't paying for your fucking bridges, bitch. All those federal taxes you love to hate, it all comes from us and goes to you, so shut up and enjoy your fucking Tennessee Valley Authority electricity and your fancy highways that we paid for. And the next time Florida gets hit by a hurricane, you can come crying to us if you want to, but you're the ones who built on a fucking swamp. Let the Spanish keep it. It's a shithole, we said, but you had to have your fucking orange juice. The next dickwad who says it's your money, not the government's money, is going to get their ass kicked. Nine of the ten states that get the most federal fucking dollars and pay the least... Can you guess? That's right, motherfucker. They're red states. And eight of the 10 states that receive the least and pay the most, it's too easy. They're blue states. It's not your money, assholes. It's fucking our money. What was that real American value you were spouting a minute ago? Self-reliance? Try this for self-reliance. Buy your own fucking stop signs, asshole. Let's talk about those values for a fucking minute. You and your southern values can bite my ass. Because the blue states got the values over you fucking real Americans every day of the goddamn week. Which state do you think has the lowest divorce rate? You marriage-hyping dickwads. Can you guess? It's fucking Massachusetts, the fucking center of the gay marriage universe. Yes, that's right. The state you love to tie around the neck of anyone to the left of Strom Thurmond has the lowest divorce rate in the fucking nation. Think that's just some aberration? How about this? Nine of the ten lowest divorce rates are fucking blue states, asshole, and most are in the Northeast where our values suck so bad. And where are the highest divorce rates? Get a fucking guess? Ten out of ten are fucking red-ass, red-ass, we're so fucking moral states. But two guys making out is going to fucking ruin marriage for you? Yeah, it seems like you're ruining it pretty well on your own, you little bastards. Oh, but that's okay because you go to church, right? I mean, you do, Right. Because we get to fucking hear about it every goddamn year at election time. Yes, we're fascinated by how you get up every Sunday morning and sing, and then you fucking towers of moral superiority. Yeah, that's a workable formula. Maybe us fucking northerners don't talk about religion as much as you because we're not so busy sinning. Hmm? Ever think of that, you self-righteous assholes? No, you're too busy erecting giant stone tablets of the Ten Commandments in buildings paid for by the fucking Northeast liberal elite. Well, this gravy train is fucking over. Take your liberal bashing, federal tax leeching, Confederate flag waving, holier than thou, hypocritical bullshit, and shove it up your ass. And no, you can't have your fucking convention in New York next time. Fuck off. That's that's Massachusetts for you, eh? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I haven't read that in, is, in like 18 red, years. Like someone, oh my God. someone in the red states could say exactly the same thing. In fact, they do. They do all the time. I mean, I just think when a marriage gets to this point, you sit the kids down and say, like, you know, <laughs> it, it's over. Mommy and like, daddy don't love each other anymore. Like they just like or they maybe they love each other, but it's just not working. Like they just can't make it work. Like, I mean, you know, I, I would just say like the South also has its grievances. Right. And like they could say the same thing about a whole host of uh, of, of things that that they feel are um, going the wrong way. And mm. so it's you know, I, I, I just think you need a little distance from this. I mean, I, I also think like America as it currently exists really prevents these places from enacting their political realities. It keeps them in a state of political schiz, you know, schizophrenia in a in a real way. Like, I mean, you're a foreigner like me. Like, you do you ever go when you go to New York or California and think like, my God, what would this place be like if they had healthcare and gun control? I mean, they all want it. They all mm. know it's what they should have, right? And like, like if they had it, these places would be truly, I mean, even more paradises than they are, right? Like, mm. what could stop them with that? And similarly, like, I think one of the things about the Southern United States and the, the the red states is that they are in such resistance to federal authority that they it's kind of stopped them from enacting their own political visions right with, with the exception of texas which really has enacted its political vision quite uh but but i think of it as a separate as a separate reality uh yeah, you know right. a separate political entity than than the south generally um you know because it's so successful uh as a like it it it, it's a huge economy it's the eighth biggest economy yeah i mean texas could be a country in its own right uh yeah absolutely i mean fully diversified economy and it has a fully you know it has a fully integrated tech sector and you know so it 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 really would function even though it is you know has no property taxes and no or I, i think it's about to get rid of property taxes it doesn't have income taxes um so but hang on, we have property taxes and income taxes. Where's it going to get us money from? I do. I have no idea. Like that's not. <laughs> that, that, that's really. I mean, you not, can tax oil right? companies, but only so much before you run out of cash. Yeah. Uh, um, look at yeah, that, Stephen. I want to get. Uh, yeah. I want to. I want to come back to negative partisanship. So, if the South, let's suppose that the person that someone in the South hears the fuck the South, and they go, "Well, I can write exactly the same thing about you know you they forcing us to you know yeah yeah exactly you forcing us yeah. to bake your fancy gay birthday cakes like fuck off we don't you yeah. know leave it up to the states to figure out what to do with abortion and gay marriage why are we being spoken down to by uh, you know by these wizards in robes in the Supreme Court and by you know Washington uh, yeah fuck you. It, how what role are the culture wars playing in this, and what what culpability does the left have for for focusing on things that are intentionally, or at least predictably, going to antagonize large swathes of the country? Well, the technical term for it is complementary radicalization. Um, it's how f- f- fringe members of the left radicalize fringe members on the right, which then leads to m- like more extremism on both sides. Um, I mean. I don't think the culture wars, I think the culture wars are really a symptom more than a cause. Like what I worry about in this book are violent groups, right? Which are marginal. They're they're not people, you know, having arguments about transgender issues and they're not, um, that's a gateway to them, right? Like that, that, that's a, that's a gateway to those paths. Um, I mean, you know, I feel like you have to look at what the cause of the culture war is, right? And why, other countries don't have anywhere near the same kind of ferocity in their culture wars as the United States does. Um, 
And I think the reason is that if you want to change political policy and you're in Canada or Australia, you have a legitimate chance of doing it. Right. Like if you want to actually go and work for a political party in Canada, I mean, it'd be the most boring thing in the world. You have to drag chairs around and stuff. But like, <laughs> you know, we, we had an election where university students were elected to parliament. Right. Yeah. People working in bars at colleges were elected to parliament. And they were making decisions. Right. Mm. Like that was that was 10 years ago. Um, whereas to actually change policy in the United States is virtually impossible, even at the highest level, even if you're the president. Yeah, right. uh, yeah, that's right. But, Even if you get elected, I mean, we just had an election so in Australia. What they do is, is they scream at each other. I mean, instead of like, abortion, is actually an incredibly perfect example because um, if your political objective is to have less abortion rate, a d decline in the number of abortions, which I personally don't feel is an illegitimate political goal at all, the very last thing you should do is outlaw it, right? Mm. Like, like the Guttmacher Institute showed that. You know, um, abortion rates in the United States declined 17 percent between 2010 and 2018. So that's and, and you know what the reason for it is? Planned Parenthood mm. education. Like if you want to lead to declines in abortion rates, what you do is you educate girls and young women and young men. Right. So that's a policy solution. Like that's, there's an actual policy solution that can be enacted and was working. Right. But they don't want to do policy. What they mm. want to do is scream in each other's face life. One side wants to scream life and the other one side wants to scream choice. And so what they do is scream at each other a lot. And the Supreme Court decision, of course, far from satisfying the question or answering the question, um, is going to create chaos forever. They're going to be screaming in their faces, in each other's faces for the next 50 years. They're not going to be a consistent policy at all. It's going to, even within these states, and certainly on the borders between these states, there's going to be huge agony about it. So when you're in this post-policy phase, what you replace it with is, is cultural politics, right? Like, you can't make a difference through government, so you think if you humiliate enough people on Twitter, you might have made some kind of difference, right? And, or if you've, you know, and certainly both sides do that, Um it's the political I mean, failures let me, that lead let me to the culture. Let me just into that, do you Stephen, see what I mean? because yeah, I, I do, but I'm not. There's something about the 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 easy authoritarianism of Supreme Court decisions, the way that they've been made in the United States, that to my to my from my perspective as an inhabitant of a parliamentary democracy, seems like a slightly perverse or short sighted way to try to resolve thorny issues like how is ab abortion ruled on in canada is it a provincial thing or a federal there is thing? literally no it is strictly a matter between a woman and her doctor and um, right but who made it that is it is it federal is it was it a, a liberal government law, law but it is sacrosanct. no conservative is opposed to abortion in this country yeah same, same here but law. i'm just asking about the is it a state-based issue or is it a national is there a national code it's uh well there are provincial rules but actually it's mostly the um medical associations who make those guidelines like it's a medical issue it's just not yeah. a legal issue right it's not like no no one in the government is consulted right about what is happening no but right? it must like be it must be a crime to a, like a, abort a baby one day before it's born i have no idea i i think there's literally no federal law on that at all right, right. Like, there, might, so there might be provincial I, laws well, I think there, there's the medical association won't do things after a certain point. And remember, all doctors work for the same 
they all right i see because it's all ah yes because it's nationalized you you can't just go and find a random doctor who's yeah i see they're all paid for by the government yeah i forgot yeah so it's like it's like the british system whereas in australia we have a private uh it's you know every doctor is a is is a private uh small business person who gets reimbursed by the the government but doesn't work for them so here i mean here we've always had it as a state issue it's never been a hot a very hot political issue but up until 2019 in new south wales the most populated state it was technically illegal to get an abortion except for exemptions for the health for the mental or physical health of the woman and the exemptions for the mental and physical health of the woman were interpreted as being so wide you could drive a truck through it and basically anyone could get an abortion and that was just the and then in 2019 they left it up to the doctors yeah, exactly. Like, you had and to then find it was, a doctor who was willing to say this is an And every is, single every single doctor would. Yeah, I mean, but that was they probably wouldn't they for it. a day before, right? Exactly. But then right. and now we now we have it codified as a certain number of weeks uh, because the state parliament wanted to guarantee that that is what the United States now has. There is nothing that crazy. I mean, I am absolutely in favor of a woman's right to choose. I, I, like you, I think this should be a medical consideration. Yeah. But I don't like the the kind of sky is falling hysteria about the United States reverting to a position that should be the more democratic of the positions where people are allowed to aggregate themselves into communities that can decide how things are going to happen. Now, it sucks big time to be a woman in that community, but it sucks big time to be a woman in like a lot of Arab countries or like, I mean, you know, we we do we do somehow on some level respect the right of the community dis- to figure it shit out. But you, you've rather um, ruined your own point by saying like, yeah, like communities in the Middle East. I mean, that's exactly what we don't want, right? Like what we, like, I, I think the- well, who's we? Are, I mean, if you live in Alabama and you well, want that, then maybe we? that's it. That's the question. Who is we, right? That's exactly the question. And, there, and, and the answer used to be, we're Americans. Mm. I, I'm not sure that is the answer anymore. Right. right. Like, I think there are a lot of people out there thinking, am I an American? And not just in, you know, Tennessee or in rural Oregon. I think a lot yeah. of people in New York are thinking, am I an American? Like, mm. is that is that my identity? Is that what I want to be? Right. Is that what it like, you know, who, what what to what am I loyal? Right. And, um, you know, treason, of course, is only a matter of dates, but as Hugo said, but in America, that's the extreme case, right? I mean, mm. these are people, like, this is a country founded on betraying the king. I mean, that's a very Canadian point of view of it, but, yeah. Yeah. you know, like, it, <laughs> like it, it's a, it, but it is a country formed on revolution and on making political decisions that are not tied to anything, that are tied to inalienable rights, right? That are not tied to any tradition at all, right? So, that's and, and, and you know the, the, that is how the first that's how the Confederates thought of themselves in the first Civil War. They absolutely thought that they were in the continuous tradition of the founding fathers. They were just separating from a political entity as they had, mm. right? So th- those are conditions that don't apply in Canada or Australia, right? Like we're still humble children of the Queen, right? And and not with a lot humble. of things that goes with grudging, well, not, grudging not children of the Queen. We are humble, but <laughs> uh, but like you, you know like. So, and that's, that's a difference. We're subjects, they're citizens. There's a big, it, I mean, it's a big difference. I think it seems subtle, but when you think of, when you actually talk to how they think of their political agency, um, especially with Oath Keepers, especially with people sort of on that middle part of the far right, like people who aren't in, 
Ku Klux Klan or anything like that, but are sort of uh, uh, anti-government patriots. Mm-hmm. Um, more broadly, they, they they feel that absolutely that tradition. That's deeply. a lovely. It's a lovely insight into the Canadian political mentality to say that we're still subjects and and the Americans are citizens. I think Australia is neither. Australians definitely don't see Australians have a huge chip on their shoulder about the mother country and definitely don't yeah. see themselves as subjects, but certainly do see themselves as a community of mates who are trying who are who are abandoned and stranded on the wrong side of the globe and are trying to muddle things out in a hardy and independent way together, rather than the American ethos of doing it independently individually well, how many australians would want to overthrow the government i mean i mean you could count them on my hands exactly right like that's how many i mean certainly in the tens of millions in the united states right, right. like right. like without without any exaggeration that's a low number like i, I mean it could be as high as 30 percent like what's, I, I mean what's the you know, what's the a, path out very, what's me? the path out what is the path out Stephen? Well, I mean, the thing about Americans is that they're incredibly capable of change. Like this, this openness that we talked about, this revolutionary spirit that they have. I mean, I I think it's real and it, it, it allows them to, they're a country of reinvention, personal reinvention, but political reinvention as well. Right. And I, I think if anyone can get out of this, it's them. Like I'll give Tyler Cowen that much. Right. Like it, it like it, they are the people who could escape that. But I, I think at this point it is required. It's going to require broad change. Like it's not the kind of thing where it's the 60s and there's all this violence and then, you know, it all works out and it's all quaaludes and hot tubs and key parties and, you know, lava lamps mm. and whatever else. Right. Like it's that it's not going to stumble along into better times because the path that it's stumbling down is, in fact, very dark indeed. But the possibility of radical change or or also some kind of highly defederated state where people really are in their states rather than part of a unified country and their political realities are totally determined by, you know, and and the Supreme court and the Congress are really kind of run the military and not a lot more. Um, Mm. I mean, you're talking about Canada, you're talking about the United Kingdom. I mean, look at Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. I mean, it was only by, it was only when Tony Blair allowed Northern Ireland the autonomy that it wanted and allowed citizens of the Republic of Ireland to be part of the European Union and have European passports and everything. And, you know, by devolving power back to local municipalities, that was how they avoided, how they ended the civil war and how they, why the United Kingdom is still together. Maybe you do need a model like that in the United States. I mean, that doesn't seem to me impossible. Um, the, the problem is that the violence has already started, right? And like, if they could, if if, the, that may be a path at the end of the violence. Right. Um, but I mean, you know, nothing is certain, right? Like, like it's, I make projections in this book off the best available models, but you know, as the statisticians say, like all models are wrong, some are useful. Right. Like Mm. these are, these are just there to demonstrate the direction that's it's going in. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different paths this could go on. Unfortunately, I mean, to me, every trend points to more political violence. I I pray that I'm wrong. Like, I, I mean, I, I genuinely hope that um, it, instead it comes to some kind of like, at least tacit agreement of, of something like that. But, you know, it seems pretty unlikely. Like whenever people have federal power, when, whichever party has federal power in the United States, they impose their will with it. Right. Like they don't, they don't sit on their hands. They, 
they, they make executive orders on immigration. You know, Congress is essentially moot at this point. They're so useless and the Senate is so, uh, you know, no laws get through a- anymore. Um, so executive orders are what they can do, but that's still a lot of power. Hmm. Stephen Marsh, it is a brace, a bracing vision of the future. I hope you're wrong, but I can't figure out why you're me wrong. Too. So that frightens yeah, me. Uh, that's exactly the position <laughs> I found myself in. I swear uh, to it's God, it's great. It's it's great to talk to you. Uh, you know, let's check in after the Civil War, and we'll when we're when we're standing atop the steaming ruins of the United States, and uh, and see where you went right and and where you. Yeah, you know, so we'll we'll count it up. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, really Stephen. Fun really enjoyed. Great it. to talk to you. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.